Good afternoon. Good afternoon, New Vision. I think I'm in the habit now of doing what we do as young school, ch school children, like good afternoon and then good afternoon, uh, being with trees. Uh, and again, when I go to the youth and I try it, they just look at me like, do you want us to respond? Or, um, but it's so good to, to be with you all uh, this Sunday, uh, the privilege to preach the Word of God to um, all generations, from the youngest of the youngest to um, the not-so-youngest of the not-so-youngest. Um, but yes, it's a, it's a privilege to do this, and I appreciate uh, Pastor Martin. He's upstairs preaching for the children's service as well as the youth service, and he'll be down here uh, afterwards. Um, but we've been in this series titled Follow, Follow Jesus, and I asked the youth group uh, a really honest question, and it helped me to understand how much they trust me and how much they're willing to be honest with me because I asked them, how many of you guys are sick and tired of this series? And at first, I saw this, like a couple of students, and then eventually they all kind of got here. Um, very honest, very honest children. Um, but we've been in this series, and this is Sermon 6 out of a, a set of eight. Um, and yes, it's a slow pace, and I'm sure some of you kind of hear, uh, as you're here week after week, hearing the repetition in the need to follow Jesus and why we follow Jesus and how we follow Jesus, because it's so important. See, we can grow up in church, we can come to church, we can serve every week, we can uh, really feel like we're pouring out our lives, and if we're not spending time to actually encounter Jesus, and we're just working, 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 we miss the point. We miss the point. And so it's crucial for us to stop and ask ourselves, are we following Jesus, and what does that look like? Um, the passage that we're looking at today um, in Matthew just to give you some background, Jesus is now in Jerusalem. It's a couple days before Passover, and that's why when he says that the, the woman who pours the oil does it to prepare me for my, my burial, it's because he knows that he is to die soon. Um, and here he's at Simon the leper's house, and we don't really know who that is or like why he's called the leper. Like That's a terrible, if it was Richard the leper, I'd be like, just anything else other than that. Um, it could be because he was healed. It could be um, because it, he's a man with leprosy who passed away and it's just his home. But Jesus is there uh, with his disciples and he's having this meal. And this woman comes with this very expensive um, jar of perfume and pours it on his head. Now here, when I was younger and I would read uh, this text or hear it, I would be really confused because um, I didn't understand why, why would she do that? And why would Jesus not say, why, what are you doing? Like if someone came up to you and started pouring something, you would just be, oh yes, what she did is just this beautiful thing. Um, when I was in college, I worked at a church summer school program. I was working with four-year-olds. Uh, and at lunchtime one day, it was like a hard day, one of these students grabs her carton of milk, opens it, and begins to just pour it on the girl next to her. And I was so shocked. I was like, why would you do that? I went to her and I was like, what are you doing? And she just, like her head's just like turned a little. And I was like, I don't understand where this comes from. And I asked her parents, like, what, where would that come from? And I had no idea. And when I read texts like this, when something happens, it's like, wait, why is this okay? I'm sure it's cultural, but why is it okay? Um, the question comes up. And it was common practice in those days when you go to someone's house, they would offer you like uh, a big thing of water or oil to clean off your feet. And if the oil was really expensive, they would pour it on the head. And so this was very normal. Um, but this woman brings this very expensive perfume, pours it on Jesus' head. And the disciples have this reaction, like, why would she do that? 
almost as though someone had poured milk. Right? They're offended by it. And in John's telling of this story, uh, he tells us that it wasn't just the disciples all kind of crowded and said this all at once. It was actually Judas, Judas, who brought it up. Right? And maybe he bolstered up the other disciples to feel this kind of indignant um, sentiment towards what this woman did. And in John, he tells us one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, Jesus, he objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now, I don't know how much you guys make in a year, <laughs> but if you imagine putting all of that into a bottle of perfume to pour on someone, not even to use or enjoy, but simply to pour on someone else, that's a big deal. And the reason why they did this was to honor that person, to say, you are a respected guest. And remember, this is Mary, not Jesus' mother, but Mary, the sister of Lazarus, who Jesus just rose from the dead. And Judas is offended by what this woman did. In the book of John, it goes on to say that Judas, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Judas, he's not only known as being this guy who betrayed Jesus at the very end, but the disciples knew, you know, he keeps track of all the money and he's taking some for himself while they're doing everything Jesus is having them do. Now Judas, who's offended by Jesus, that's not very uncommon. Um, Jesus pretty much offended all of the people around him. But here Jesus defends this woman. Judas is offended because he has this idea of what it means to live with Jesus, to have life with Jesus. You see, everyone around Jesus had a picture of what life with Jesus should look like. See, the Jews expected Jesus to overthrow Roman government, to build up this new kingdom where all the, the Israelites would join together, unified and strong as this kingdom, and they imagined like what David and Solomon had with the, all that they built, and they imagined something like that. And Jesus offended them by telling them, that life was difficult by preaching difficult things. The disciples had this picture too, and unlike all of the other Jewish people, they imagined sitting at Jesus' left and right when he ruled as king, that they would kind of be like governors or like high officials under Jesus' established kingdom there. And Jesus offended them by saying, my followers have to take up their cross, deny themselves, Jesus offended so many people around him. But for Judas here, this seems to be the last straw, right? Maybe he's frustrated over what Jesus has been teaching and it's like, you know what, this isn't really what I thought it was going to be. Uh, I'm taking some money because, you know, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> and this is the last straw because after this, he goes to the chief priests. You see, right before this passage, uh, Matthew tells us that the chief priests and elders, they gathered together to talk about this Jesus, and they decided, you know what, now we're going we're gonna to have to get rid of this guy who's giving us all of these problems, who's challenging our authority, right? But we can't do it during the festival. Remember, it's Passover is coming up. And that's their big holiday when all the Jews would come, all the Jews would come and celebrate and remember what God did uh, in the Exodus. And so these leaders, they're afraid, you know, if we do something during that time, there's going to be a riot. So they're trying to find a way to get at Jesus, to get rid of him. And after this happened, Judas goes to them and says, what are you willing to give me if I give you that opportunity? See, I'm inside with Jesus. I know what he's doing, where he's going. You know, you haven't been able to catch him. 
And so they pay him. They count out 30 pieces of silver. And when we hear things like this, it's easy for us to be harsh on the disciples, especially Judas, right? Every now and then we have stories of the disciples are like, Jesus, what do you mean? And they just don't get it over and over. And if you've grown up in the church, if you've read through the Gospels, it's frustrating. It's like, why don't you get it? He's been telling you this from the beginning. But Judas especially, it's easy, it's very easy to hate Judas. He betrayed Jesus. He was stealing from Jesus. But like Judas, like all of the people who were around Jesus, each and every one of us hold a picture of what life should look like when we have Jesus. We all have this picture, and it's shaped by our goals, by what we think is our ideal life, what society around us tells us is our ideal life. Maybe it's number of children, your living situation, your career. I think of it as like my 15-year plan, because it's like 20 years is too far, because I'm only 27, so thinking 20 years ahead, it's like, I can't, I don't even know what life is going to be like. Um, so 15 is like a good number. Uh, But I think a lot of times we think of the next life stages. So if you're single, you think about what my life will be like when I get married, right? Where will I be in my career when I'm married and things like that. When you're married, you're like, what will life be like when we have children? When you have young children, maybe they're like five, you're like, what is high school going to be like for them? Like, what do I have to start doing now? When they're in high school, you're thinking they've got to be in college, their career, their marriage, my retirement. What is that all going to look like? We all have this picture of what life should look like. We paint this picture. See, me as a younger person, I get a lot of advice from people who are older and more seasoned. Um, Just the other day, my mom was lecturing me on how you must have more than one child. I was like, okay, let me find someone first. Like, we're skipping a couple of steps. Um, But she went on for like 15 minutes. Uh, But I have people who give me advice, you know, get married as soon as possible as soon as possible. The other people who say, you know what? Take your time. Enjoy single life because once you get married, there's no going back. I'm like, I'll pray for your marriage. Um, <laughs> other people say, you know, have, have kids as soon as you get married, as soon as you can because you want kids as young, as, like for your age, as young as possible so that you can keep up with them. And they like calculate for me. Like if you have kids now, you're, when they go to college, you're going to be this age. And you're going to be old and you're, you're not going to be able to run around with them. I'm like, that's just too much to like think of. That's like beyond 20 years. I can't do that right now. And then other people, they'll say, wait, you know, get to know your wife, build like routines and traditions before you have children. Right? Other people will say, you know, don't be picky. If she loves Jesus, just get married and go. <laughs> I'll be like, oh, hold on. That's a little intense. Um, but then on the flip side, some people will say, you have to be so careful who you marry. Um, be really picky. And so our ideal life isn't just shaped by what we think for ourselves, but it's shaped by the world we live in, by the people around us who speak into our lives. And a lot of times we come with this pretty picture in our minds to church or to God and say, God, you must give me this. This is what I need. And Maybe you expect God to give you everything in that picture. Or maybe you've been in church for a while, you've been following Jesus, you call yourself a Christian, and you're like, no, I understand that God has not promised me all of those things, right? But even still, even for those of us who think like that, we come with this picture of what life with Jesus should look like. And what I call this picture, it's not our ideal life, but I call it our decent life. It's our ideal life plan B. 
And basically, the title on top of this picture is No Bumps in the Road. No Bumps in the Road. Now, I can't imagine anyone coming to church or praying and saying, God, I pray for a smooth life. Like, that's it. I just want a smooth life. But this idea of no bumps in the road comes up when something goes wrong. When something changes in our lives, when a curveball comes our way, and we have this knee-jerk reaction to say, God, how could you let this happen to me? I go to church, I worship you, I, I tithe, I serve, I commit my life to you, and should life really be this hard if I'm living with Jesus? We get frustrated over that. Andy Stanley, um, the person who kind of shaped all of the, the series that we're going through, he says this. He says, that God, he doesn't exist. The God who doesn't let bad things happen to people, he just doesn't exist. That's not God. And last week, uh, Pastor Martin, he preached on the fine print of following Jesus. That following Jesus includes this need to, to deny ourselves in order to live by God's will. Right? We will have to say no to ourselves at some point and probably repeatedly as we follow Jesus. And today, we're going deeper in that idea to go beyond actions and behavior to the point of putting down this pretty and perfect-looking picture of what our life should be with Jesus. To put that down and say, God, I place this at your feet. Show me your picture for my life. And it's this movement from saying to God, if only I have this, I will worship you. If only I have this, life will be okay. Moving from that to saying, if only I have God. That's like, it sounds like a cliche, um, but that's really what this is all about. In scripture, we have examples of this, of people putting their picture down. The Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, um, he's the one who, who says, follow me as I follow Christ. He once prayed to God to remove a certain thorn in his flesh. And we don't know if this is like a physical ailment, like pain or an actual like thorn or something going on, or if it's something internal that he wrestled with or struggled with, or possibly it could have been like a hard-to-deal-with kind of a person. We all have those people in our lives who are like, ah, thorn in my flesh. <laughs> but he prays to God three times, take this away from me. But God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And yes, the Apostle Paul, without this thorn, he might have been able to live more comfortably. He might have been even able to run harder to do the work of God. But God's picture for his life was that he lived with that thorn, that it would be a reminder for him and an encouragement that God's grace is indeed sufficient. And God went and used him in mighty ways to build up the church. God used even the disciples, right? the 11 remaining, the ones who didn't understand him, the ones who fled when he died and hid away. He used those broken people who had this incorrect picture of what life with Jesus should look like, and he built the early church. And in our lives, when we learn to put down our will before God, he shows us his will. 
And we get to live it out with him. We get to see the beauty of this picture. And it's not beautiful if we're clinging on to our own picture. It's hard to see his picture. And for the Christian, for the follower of Jesus, this is our life. This is a lifelong journey that ends with glorification, that ends with this eternal union with God. But that begins now here in this eternally depth, uh, eternally deep journey and relationship with a sovereign God. Now, in my fairly few years of life, um, I've learned a few things. Uh, I always feel weird saying that I know things in front of people who are much older than me. I'm just like, I don't know anything. But I've learned a few things. And when it comes to Christians, I found that Christians go through a certain cycle. We start holding on to our own picture of what life with Jesus should look like. We cling to it. We live by it. And then somehow God challenges us to put that down. And sometimes it might be like an amazing sermon or like a great retreat experience. But a lot of times, God challenges us by throwing us a curveball. Something happens in our lives where we begin to question like, what is going on? This isn't the way it should be. And we're challenged to trust in God or to trust in ourselves to make that decision. And Christians, we, we, as we learn to put down our will in those situations, we learn to trust God and we enjoy life with him. And those moments are so rich and those seasons are so great. But all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we're caught off guard because we find ourselves struggling with that very same thing yet again. A lot of times when we struggle with something, something in our hearts, whether it's pride, whether it's selfishness, whether it's finding our security in the things that we own or can achieve, we struggle with that throughout our lives. Every life stage that comes, we tend to struggle with those same things. So as a young person, if you learn not to be so prideful and you learn to appreciate others, when you get married, you struggle with that in your marriage. When you have children, it comes up again. Every life stage, these same things seem to come up. And this process of seeing that and putting down our own will and our own picture for our lives and turning to God and saying, God, I want to live the way you call me to live, that is called repentance. And this repentance goes far deeper and it's far richer than simply behavior modification, saying, you know what, I'm not going to do A, B, and C for like a week. That's my repentance. But really placing our lives at the foot of the cross and saying, God, use it. Make it what you want to make it. You see, that's really hard because we love control. And for most of our lives, we're taught to cling to this picture and not to let go. That if we let go, we might be seen as a failure or whatever else it might be, that we might lose our sense of identity or significance. But God is standing there saying, hey, let go of that because that is broken. That's a broken, messed up picture. Let me give you a new one. And the struggle for the Christian is to say, I trust what you say. I trust what you say so I can put this down and actually live the life that you have for me. Now, the only way Christians are able to do this is through worship. It's not coming to church and just saying, you know, let me throw my life away. I'm not going to worry about money or I'm just going to throw all my money, like use it for charity and like be left with nothing and live like John the Baptist or like those the missionaries that I hear about in other countries. That's not the Christian ideal for repentance and living for God. 
We come to God in repentance by seeing who he is and what he's done, by marveling at the cross, just like the songs that we sang, to take time to stop and to be encountered by Jesus yet again. And the more you've walked with Jesus, I feel like the harder it is to get to that place of remembering the goodness of who Jesus is. Because the more we're in church, the more we serve, the more we do these things, it becomes routine. And I think Christians are called to break that routine, to encounter Jesus, to reflect on what the cross is. That Jesus, though we were sinners, though we were enemies of God, he came and he died a death that he didn't deserve so that we could have life with him, so that we could have this beautiful picture of what God has. That's repentance, to see the beauty of that and to recognize that he is worthy of our worship, that he is worthy for us to lay our pictures down and to come before him. As sovereign, almighty God, he's worthy of our lives. Let me pray for us.